0: How are you man it's really good to see you
1: yeah i'm doing really good thank you fantastic um How about
0: i'm doing great yeah i'm doing really really well we're um i was just telling you before the show all the all the cool things that we have in the oven right now we're developing a new mobile app for um integral life members which i think is going to be really cool um i also let you know that you know last month we actually released um you and i took the month off And rather than, uh, you know, having something fresh with me and you to publish, I actually sort of turned it over to these high school kids who did a really, really amazing uh, interview with you. And people absolutely loved watching that, Ken. They really loved watching that. So that was our first uh, our first uh, Ken show co-host, basically, were were those guys. And I was telling you before the show, I was talking with their teacher yesterday, actually, and uh, he's going to be continuing this program Every year, doing an integral study uh, in this high school. Great, and,
1: and we're- any
0: number of students they want to put on for Q and A. That would be great. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, and they're showing like some of your videos. Uh, in their class they actually just showed um the film clip episode that ryan olkey and i did going through the stages of development which you and i also have a version of they showed that in their class so uh, i'm just staying in contact with him and just seeing you know what sort of resources integral life can provide for them and it's just it's very exciting to have that sort of integral outpost in a high school so great yeah well let's jump into today's session yeah subtle energies subtle energies this is going to be a good one ken and this is Basically, we're wrapping an episode around one of my favorite pieces of your writing, which um, was previously known as excerpt G. Uh, meaning yeah. it was an excerpt from one of the forthcoming volumes of the Cosmos trilogy, right. uh, and maybe at some point later on we can get a general update about how that's going. But this has long been, again, just one of my absolute favorite pieces of your writing. Uh, it's known as, again, a comprehensive theory of subtle energies, and you know it's it's this incredible piece of writing that I think is demonstrative of the just just the clarity and the insight and the depth that you bring. To your latest phase of work, your Wilbur five oh, right. work, um, which is some of my just absolute favorite writing that you've done. So I've got a few questions lined up here to kind of bring yep. us yep. into the topic. And yep. I'll do what I usually do, Ken, is I'll just sort of read this and then let you respond. Okay. Right, so let's see here. Uh, in this article, you offer an exceptionally elegant summary of how subtle energies might be accounted for by integral meta theory. However, right from the start, we can see how challenging it is to discuss something like subtle energies. It's a field that's littered with magical thinking, charlatans, and all kinds of snake oil. Yeah. Uh, however, throughout your career, you've always been very, very careful to only incorporate ideas that have a rigorous body of evidence behind them right. into your model. And of course, the evidence can come through any coherent methodology in any of the four quadrants or eight right. zones uh, and can be enacted by the eye of flesh, the eye of mind, the eye of spirit, et cetera. But when it comes to things like subtle energy, it can be much more difficult to find this kind of rigorous and repeatable evidence. We have tons of interior-based first-person anecdotes from people throughout history about their personal experiences with subtle energies. However, because we're largely discussing exterior quadrant realities here, various forms of matter energy in the exterior alongside the interior states associated with them, This means that we ultimately require evidence from exterior third-person empirical methodologies in order to verify or falsify their existence. We'll talk a little bit later about why it's so difficult to find this third-person evidence for subtle energies and why we need to be incredibly careful about the sorts of evidence that are often provided. But for now, the question of whether or not subtle energies objectively exists seems to be unverified and for now, unfalsifiable. Which is why in this excerpt, your argument really seems to be something along the lines of if and only if these sorts of phenomena exist, well, here's how they probably work. Right. Um, And again, what results is one of the finest and most elegant integrations of science and spirituality that I think we've ever seen. Yeah, but yeah. this sense of ep- of epistemological caution is reinforced by the number of times you use the word hypothesis right. throughout this piece, as if to remind us again and again that while we can certainly theorize about how all this might work, right, we're right. still waiting to see the hard evidence. That's right. Now, That's right. clearly, you can seem to believe that there is some, you know really real reality (laughs) to these phenomena, or else you wouldn't have written this piece in the first place. And you're so careful in your treatment of the subject, both in terms of the time and the thought that went into it, but also in terms of the, the largely hypothetical frame that you seem to present this with. So my first question for you, Ken, is how lightly should we Hold all of this? Should we as readers also be careful about how we enact the theory of subtle energies and remain wary of any strong
1: conclusions that we might want to take away from it? Right. Um, I would say, taken lightly, because there's still all, with a few exceptions, they're mostly hypothetical. And I came to decide to do This hypothetical metaphysics, Um, and I will preface it by saying that's one of the things that I've tried to exclude, if you will, from integral theory. Mm -hmm. Is it mere metaphysics, magical thinking, miraculous stuff? If I can find a way that that will fit in, then I'll gladly use it. But particularly as you study the developmental stages from magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic, you start to see that there's quite a bit of difference between magic and mythic stages of development and rational and pluralistic and integral. Mm -hmm. And the magic and mythic stages are ones that present mythic realities as if they were true. And keep in mind that James Fowler, when he studied these stages of spiritual or or religious development, he found one of the lowest stages to be mythic, but he called it directly mythic literal stage Mm -hmm. because all myths Produced at that stage are taken to be literally true, and so we think of them now as things like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Well, those are mythical productions, and most of us as kids believed mm-hmm. in one or the other. Those often very firmly. I mean, I remember when I found out that Santa Claus doesn't really exist. I just cried for all day long, I couldn't believe it, it was terrible. Um, Same with the tooth theory, though not as traumatically. Um, And then as I continued my own integral growth and coming up with ways and methodologies to hold other apparently truths as real truths, Then I started looking over some of the things in the mythic traditions that Mm -hmm. we have excluded because they were fairy tales or Santa Claus. And of course, one of the main areas I found was the whole path of waking up that largely had been rejected by the modern Western World starting with the enlightenment and it tended to do that because it confused religious thinking or religious spiritual intelligence with an actual waking up a direct experience of reality and as it confused those two because after all they're all religious it threw all of them out and this was one of the disasters of the modern enlightenment. As much good as it brought, it also had some downsides, which mm-hmm. together are referred to as the crime of the enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So one of the downsides was, since it pronounced God is dead, it took anything that looked like God, includes spiritual waking up and religious growing, up and toss both of those. Mm -hmm. And that was just a disaster of the first magnitude because the whole point about the enlightenment is it gave us a way in the growing up stage to move beyond mythic literal thinking to rational thinking. And so as people started to do that, There was a broad movement called demythologizing, which is where the rational stages went back and looked at the Bible and stuff and just started denying all of the miraculous miracles, mythologies, and so on. As a matter of fact, there's a common apocryphal apocryphal image of Thomas Jefferson sitting on the Whitehead steps, And he had a Bible in one hand and a pair of scissors in the other. And he really furiously went through. And in the Bible, he cut out all the magic and miracles and supernatural stuff and left only the rational and ethical, moral principles of the Bible. And this, by the way, was actually published. It was called the Jefferson Bible. And this was the way people in the modern Enlightenment Western world began to look at religion in general. And so having once thrown waking up and growing up out, part of my growth and understanding depended on saying, wait a minute, is there nothing good in the pre-modern era And as I did that and looked back and read things like D.T. Suzuki's essays in Zen Buddhism, and found out there was a whole core of spirituality that didn't rest on mythic dogmas or belief in, frankly, unbelievable things like Jesus Christ is born of a biological virgin, and I mean, on and on. And imagine that the story Mary tells that she's a real virgin. And if she's actually pregnant, she's clearly been fooling around. So she has to come up with some story to Joseph to get him to buy it. And her story is, yes, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, the real father's not from this earth. And Joseph is stupid enough to buy that. <laughs> reminds me of like well, Greek mythology, because Zeus was having sex with women and men all over the place. Right. And as Freud once commented, if we look at other civilizations, if we look at Greece, we see Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, and all, but they didn't become monolithic gods or goddesses right. ruling over us. But he said, the Jews, for some reason, when they came upon their monolithic God, they made that an inherent necessary belief for your own salvation, your own coming to into an agreement with this God figure. So So, that became an interesting story. mm -hmm. Why? did the Greeks not get caught up? But why did the Jews get caught up in this punishing, overwhelming, um, almost nasty God figure? And particularly in the Old Testament, as you read about what God did, there was nothing nice about him. I mean, he's directly recommending that his chosen people kill all these other tribes, commit genocide on the Amalekites, steal their women and children. And we know what their women were being stolen for. That's not hard to guess. Um, But uh, slavery was embraced. Homosexuality was embraced. This is as anti-woke a god as you can find. So all of that is understandable why all of that was thrown out. But were there parts that were worthwhile saving? And my studies led me and a lot of other people to believe that no, there was a core of virtually all of the world's great religions that contained a waking up component So Zen Buddhism doesn't have any gods or god figures or nasty demands that you commit genocide on all of your neighbors or any of that. It was simply aimed at a transformation of consciousness that brought you into what was originally called an ultimate state of consciousness, where you directly experienced this ground of all being. And so that became known as enlightenment, awaking, metamorphosis, fauna, the great liberation, the supreme identity. And if you looked closely, you could find those small tiny aspects of the religion in almost every major religion, including Christianity, Christianity had all its beliefs, and so on, that by the fourth century AD, it had formed into the Nicene Creed and the Apollo Creed. And those are nothing but a string of myths that you're supposed to believe in. Well, that wasn't a real waking up. That was just a dogmatic belief system that you adopted. And if you adopted it correctly... And when you died, you went to heaven, lived forever with God and Jesus. And all of these myths were just unbelievable. And there are even Christian writers now, like Bishop Shelby Spung, has written dozens of books on this. His latest book is called Unbelievable. And he goes through all of the supernatural miracles magic and mythic tales in the bible and he points out that every one of them are in fact unbelievable and that's the problem that's why christianity is dying today is to the extent it keeps pushing these myths which educated people find ridiculous and unbelievable yeah that religion is gonna continue to decline.
0: And I just wanna say, real real briefly, kind I just wanna say, um, I was deeply saddened by the news that um, Bishop Spong passed away last month.
1: Yeah, oh, I I know. He had had a minor stroke and I just started to talk with him at that Mm -hmm. time. And we had some wonderful discussions, but I could tell that he was in decline. And would probably, frankly, die fairly soon. And unfortunately, he did. That's he tragic. was a giant of demythologizing Christianity. Yeah. And while, while preserving the soul of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as I was looking back through trying to find what, what reality. some of these great traditions hold. The primary one I found was a process of waking up, not believing in a mythic story or a mythic dogma or anything like that, but an actual psychotechnology of consciousness change, where you would actually get into these states of consciousness that were known as unity consciousness, divine consciousness, consciousness of oneness. The Tibetans simply called it one taste, when you would become one with literally everything. And that was a ground of all being, which appeared to be the real ever present reality that various exoteric religions were interpreting largely through their mythic understandings because this was the great mythic age remember Mm -hmm. and so they didn't have access well a few advanced very advanced people did but for the most part people believed things in a mythic literal fashion and so as i was going back one of the things that i found that almost all of the waking up traditions had was a notion of subtle energy. And so that sort of alerted me to the fact that that could be there. Mm -hmm. And then as I just continued my week, my year in and year out studies, whenever I'd run into rash, subtle energy, I sort of make a note of it. And there were several places where a type of evidence became clear that there was a subtle energy involved. So there was a guy named Taylor who was in Yale in the mid-1900s, 1920, 1930, 1940. And he actually, I don't know the machine that he used to do this but he actually ended up measuring and it might just have been subtle energy patterns but he measured taking a typical human body and he would measure it and get about an inch of energy surrounding it which could have just been electrical energy other people have found that but nonetheless that was the first holonic shield of energy he found. Mm. Then he kept measuring and he found what he called and he called that an L field, a life field. Then he kept measuring and he found beyond that, extending sometimes two or three feet, was what he called a T field. It was a thought field. So going from gross to subtle to psychic, at least in terms of thought, Mm -hmm. that got an enormous amount of energy. It was published in peer-reviewed journals. Um, The experiments that he had done to discover these fields, those were all repeated. And there was a virtually unanimous agreement that he had found three subtle energy field surrounding the human body in a holonic fashion so that was one area and i was really fascinated in how he did it and what he did and the fact that it had achieved such wide acceptance in academia again he's doing this in yale for heaven's sakes um, Then there were other similarly related, not identical, but similarly related, such as near-death experience. Now, how this applies is people apparently have experiences where their body dies. There's no physical body left. And yet there's still subtle uh, mental awareness of what's going on. And this shows the fact that that can transcend even the material brain occurs when people actually undergo brain death. Mm -hmm. And they still can see and report what's going on in the world around them. Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have, uh, is his name Eben Alexander, something like that, Mm. who is recently uh, a Harvard professor and doctor who had uh, spinal meningitis that completely knocked out his brain functioning. I mean, completely, no neocortex, no nothing. And he describes in his book on heaven, he describes this extremely profound experience that he had while his brain was literally dead. I mean, it's flatland a uh, flat line than every EEG you can see. And he had what would classically be called a mystical experience. He went through various visions and then he got to the very highest of it and he couldn't think of how to explain it at all. He finally found a term Because it was an infinite blackness with an an extraordinary luminosity Mm. coming out of it. It was, in fact, a version of the causal dreamless sleep, emptiness structure, but exuberating luminosity out of what was unmistakably a black background. Kind and, of like,
0: uh, kind of like that, uh, uh, that installment of Alex Gray's Sacred Mirrors. One of the, one of the final Sacred Mirrors is, right. is representing exactly that, like the, the, the
1: empty luminosity exactly. um, that he tries to, yeah, exactly. And he, when he came out of his experience, he did manage to survive, came back to life, and he was absolutely radically lost as to how to describe it Mm. because it was such a radically different state and he said he spent like six months reading all the literature to try to find a name or an explanation for this experience of course all he was reading was medical texts (laughs) and they have no bloody idea what any of that is so he said he finally picked up a couple of christian mystical text and he said they described it perfectly a luminous darkness and that's exactly what he had seen and so he got on to this type of understanding which was more mystical but he was absolutely convinced and now all he does is goes around the nation teaching this he quit harvard he said that's the last place you can talk to people about this kind of stuff so he quit harvard and he just goes around the country you can see him on tv or on any of the talk shows and stuff and he's giving an explanation of what happened Mm -hmm. and also he's coupling that with his own thoughts on this is not a product of brain because there was no brain functioning. Right. So just given that, and again, you take all of these, you know, hypothetically, but that's another indicator of something like that happening. Mm-hmm. So is, again, out of the body, near death, out of the body experiences because you are, your brain, body is dying and yet you're still aware. So something is going on. There's um, a guy named Beck, who's a doctor, a physiological doctor, and he does a lot of work on bone. He's an orthopedic, orthopedic surgeon. And he started, this might just be using etheric or astral energy, might not be getting out into this far out psychic or causal experiences. But even, this again is just another little bit of information that you can add. Even if he's using a and just astral energy, he does that with anybody who has broken bones. And he has the empirical evidence that when you use that energy, he calls it bioenergy. When you use that bioenergy, the healing process is almost doubled Hmm. in bones and stuff. And so that's a very powerful indicator of, if nothing else, the healing capacities of some of these subtle energies.
0: And briefly, Ken, Um, just to let our audience know, we'll be going through some of these different forms of subtle energy a bit later in the call. We'll talk about etheric energy, astral energy, um, et cetera. Sure. Um,
1: Then just take out-of-the-body experiences. Mm -hmm. There, even people that deny psychic phenomena, agreed that out-of-the-body experiences occur because there's too much evidence, empirical evidence for them. And what happens is that a person will simply feel that they're leaving their body. They can still see and move around. They can fly to places. And this is one of the reasons that I like many traditions are called the level of subtle energy that does that the astral level, because this is known as astral projection. Um, but many people report having types of out-of-the-body experience. Uh, it can be when they're having surgery and all of a sudden they're on the top of the roof, looking down at the surgeon and so on. Um, it's not to say that people can, well, some people apparently can, but it's not to say that this is just um, an experience that you can induce whenever you want it. Mm. Um, but some sort of intentionality does seem to help. So um, that's another experience where we're having separate Bodies not connected with egoic consciousness that seem to exist. Then, and this is completely non-empirical, but if you read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you'll notice that you start out dying by dissolving all of the lower levels up. And then as you get into each higher level, the emotional state and then the mental state and then the psychic and causal state. And each one of those, you go through a kind of dying process. You just let it go Mm -hmm. and you're still aware of what's happening. And then when you finally stop breathing, then you're taken to be actually dead. But then the Tibetan Book of the Dead describes what happens. This is apparently reported from people who have gone through these states and remembered them. And there you see a regeneration of the states. So first, when you actually die, you've gone from gross to subtle. They've all died into causal, which is just a pure luminous light. And then if you don't understand that for what it is, that luminous light gives way to a smaller version, which is a subtle. And in the subtle realm or archetypal realm, there's all sorts of gods and goddesses and wrathful deities and peaceful deities that swarm in And if you can understand what those are, which are namely just projections of your own mind, then you can get out of those. And then you move into the gross realm, which is where you take on a physical body. In other words, you are actually in the womb and you're starting to grow and develop as a human being. And then if there is, a, and this is a very Freudian interpretation, but if you're a man and you see the man and the woman making love, you step in to try to separate them to get rid of the man. And so you can have the woman. And if you're a female, you do exactly the opposite. You get rid of the mom and try to embrace the father. But that means you have selected your parents for this rebirth. So out you come with those as your mom and dad. Again, what if your soul
0: is non binary? I'm sorry? What if your soul is non binary?
1: Um, the soul, well, the soul can be non binary, but the physical body is an XY or an XX. Mm, mm you're stuck with that. Okay. So (laughs) out you plop, and there you are. Um, And then there's last of all, and this was something that I barely mentioned, but you'll remember Karelian photography. Mm. It was pictures taken of like plant forms and all living forms. And it showed a several inch very bright envelope of energy around all living things including trees and animals and all of that and that for a while that was a big deal and so I sort of paid attention to it but for me it was just slogging into this wealth of subtle energies bio energies that kept showing up Mm. sort of all over the place So the one thing it didn't do was how do you tie those subtle energies in with the gross physical body? Because apparently they do exist. Mm -hmm. And for most of a human being's life, they stay attached to the human body. And so how can you hook the... Energetic quadrants with the uh, physical quadrants, mm-hmm. um, and so that's what I wrote this section. This that you mentioned this early version of this. That's why I wrote it. Um, it was called from from the Great Chain of Being to Postmodernism in Three Easy Steps. Yeah. Yep. And. You wanted to me to go over that.
0: Yeah. Should we segue into that? Yeah. Yeah, and and just to summarize what you're saying, Ken. So it sounds like you know, as you as this sort of curiosity came on online for you, and you started sort of filtering through some of the let's just say pre-rational um, expressions of spirituality, you started to find this vast sort of um, body of evidence, and again, that body of evidence came from just about every quadrant. I mean, you're talking about you know, f- sort of photographic evidence to a certain extent right. and all of these um, phenomenological experiences that people are having. Right. And this seemed to impress on you that, okay, there's, there's something going something. on here. There's some yeah. unseen mechanism that is producing so many of these experiences for so many people in so many different cultures and right. eras throughout history we just have this this massive body of descriptions of these states and it sounds like you then began to take the next step and said okay well we have some pretty good ideas about the gross mass energy of the universe how can we start you know sort of weaving these ice these ideas together so that we can you know maybe come upon a a a more comprehensive sense of like in again in the outer quadrants here's kind of how things might fit together. Is that, is is that a good summary? Yeah. Cool. Awesome. No, that's, 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 that's really useful, Ken, because, you know, especially for the point that I mentioned in in the question, especially because there are so many people (laughs) who are selling snake oil and trying to convince people that they have these superpowers and cities and and all of that. And I think it's important for our audience to know that, okay, you know, these are, these are extraordinary claims that may in fact be true some of these individuals right. may have some of these capacities however right. those extraordinary claims also require extraordinary evidence right uh, for us to to really take that seriously and to incorporate it into a
1: larger integral model right and even for something like near-death experiences just in the course of ongoing study of tons of different fields uh ended up doing a lot of study of near death experiences mm-hmm. and what struck me was that the literature divided into oh it can just be explained as you know brain lacking oxygen and then other half said no that doesn't account for it at all mm-hmm. and if we take examples of just that it doesn't work so what i found as i kept reading them is that all the ones that felt sure that an nde was occurring were themselves physicians mm. and almost all of the ones that didn't believe it were not physicians Interesting. and when you read a book by a physician they're extremely careful to go through all of the supposed explanations of what why some brain malfunction resulted in an out-of-the-body experience and without virtually without exception i found all of the medical accounts said no these are real And you just have, I mean, I don't know what to tell you about it, but you're just going to have to deal with it. Now, if you want to interpret that in some religious terms or some other terms, that's up to you. But I'm telling you, they're real. And they're not due to brain, oxygen, starvation, or anything like that. And then they would give lists of medical reasons why it couldn't happen and so on. So those became pretty intriguing point. yeah yeah and i want to mention to
0: folks too that um if you go to integrallife.com slash courses so you just hit the courses uh button at the very top of the menu um you'll actually find a, a, a really amazing series that ken did with uh andrew holacek who's a buddhist teacher right um, and this is this of all of our courses this has one of my favorite titles ken um we named it okay i'm dead now what yeah. <laughs> and and it's, in a, it's a staggeringly beautiful course. I mean, you and Andrew walk through the actual phenomenology of the death experience, what to expect, what's going to happen, sort of all these different types of experiences that can right. occur to us. And you also speak to, you know, sort of the nitty gritty of like, how do we prepare for death? I mean, on the level of like, how do I create a will? How do I, you know what I mean? So it's, right. it's sort of this all quadrant translation, and a transformative set of practices that Andrew provides to help us prepare for our death. So I encourage people to check that out. Um, When I was putting together that course, Ken, I actually took that as a marketing challenge. I said, you know, I want to come up with a marketing page that starts off with the line, you are going to die someday. And that's what we did. (laughs) That's what we do to this course. And it's a wonderful course. And I highly suggest people check it out. Great. Um, That's all right on the money.